Today we're continuing with Nehemiah chapter 2 as the story progresses. And consequently, what I hope to do today is basically let the story be the story. In other words, um, oftentimes I'll begin with an opening illustration and close with something of that kind. But since we are in a narrative or a type of biblical literature which uh, develops as a progression of details and events, so too do I want to work the sermon this morning. So instead of doing it in sort of a New Testament, logical, argumentative way where I have points one, points two, and points three, instead what I want to do it is more in a narrative genre. In other words, what I'm going to do, a little bit like Dickens but not nearly so smart, is to bring in a bunch of little details and show them to you, and you'll think, wow, those are interesting. What's that there for? And then at the end, hopefully I'm going to tie it all together. So at the start, we're just going to walk through the text. We're going to listen to the story, and then I'm going to take a flashlight and just kind of highlight certain details and certain clues and certain pieces of the puzzle. And then you'll see here's a piece, here's a piece, there's a piece. And then at the end, hopefully we'll bring it all together. Is everybody with me? Yes. All right. Excellent. Thank you, Paul. Here we go. Chapter 1. Actually, Chapter 1, I want to start with a bit of review. This is something like previously on Lost. Uh, Previously in Nehemiah, this is what happened. Um, Chapter 1, now it happened in the months of November or December or in the wintertime that Nehemiah got this bad news. And here it is. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So he gets the bad news and then what's he going to do? Well, as a man of God, man of the word, man of prayer, he's going to take it to God through the word in prayer. He's going to connect it to the covenant and say, here's our situation. Dear Lord, please help. Will you respond? So after the bad news in verses 5 through 6, Nehemiah prays. He says, oh, Lord God, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. There's the connector. And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Please hear. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant. Now, again, he connects it to the covenant in the Old Testament. Anytime you hear this word, remember it's often associated with the words of the law or the covenant. Remember the word that, you're, that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, here's a condition, I will scatter you among the peoples, which is what's happened. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, I will gather you and bring them to the place that I have chosen. There's the covenant. So Nehemiah prays in verse 11. He says, okay, Lord. Let's do it. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Now, here's the hint for the next chapter. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. So if you weren't here with us last week, that's where we're at. Now, chapter 2. Several months later, in the spring... In March and April, it was November, December, now it is March and April. It says in verse 1, it happened in the month of Nisan, 
In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king, and now I've never been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, Hey, why is your face so sad? Seeing you are not sick, this sadness is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, said to the king, Oh, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when hmm, the place of my father's grave lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And king said to me, What is it you're asking? What are you requesting? So I prayed to the Lord God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, Well, how long will we be gone? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time frame. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to this guy named Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, so that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the houses that I shall occupy. This is what I need. And the king granted it to me. Why? For, because, here's the main reason, the hand of the Lord was upon me. Now there's the interaction. Now here's the follow-up action. Verse 9. Nehemiah sets out and it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. These are the official documentation. See, you've got it. Now the king had sent officers with me of the army and horsemen. As for protection along the way. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and I was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Then he takes his three-day tour around the city. He gathers the intelligence that he needs, collects the data, surveys the land, gets the lay of the land and scope of what he's dealing with. And he comes back and he reports it to the people in verse 17. And he says, Then I said to them, Look, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come now. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the key feature, which is the fact that the hand of my God was upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. And so the people agreed. And they said, let us rise up and build. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now in your bulletins, you see that we have chapters 2 to 3 today. And what I did is I left off the last couple verses of that because it uh, introduces the opposition to you. And next week in chapter 4, we're going to deal heavily with the opposition. So I'm just going to save that little tidbit for next week and have you come back for that. But for today, here's the approach. We're going to let the story tell the story. We're going to shine the flashlight on it. And then we're going to apply it to our lives. So let's look in detail then at a few of the key pieces of this puzzle 
beginning in verse 1. It says, it was the month of Nisan. Now, as I hinted to you earlier in my uh, bit of masala or extra flavoring along with the reading of the text, that this was three or four months later from the previous chapter. This is a significant feature in our spiritual application of this text because what it shows you is that Nehemiah is coming to a point where the action occurs, but there's a long dead space between that point and when God originally laid it on his heart. And although I call it a dead space, it's really not a dead space. It's just a time in which the action is more spiritual than physical. In other words, the real work is going on behind the scenes for these last three or four months when Nehemiah is praying. He is engaging with God. He has this time to prepare himself spiritually. He's waiting upon the Lord. And now, several months later, after a long period of quietness, patience, and rest, all of a sudden the time to act has arrived. Now that's significant in our lives, right? Because we get some idea in our head and we're like, okay, Lord, got it. Let's go. Let's do it tomorrow. Come on. Lord's like, nope, wait. What do you mean, wait? You told me to do it. Yeah, wait. Hold on. But you want it to be done, right? Yes, I do, but not now. When? I'm not going to tell you when. You'll know when the time comes. (sighs) Wait. And so you have three to four months of quiet, prayerful, nothing recorded time where Nehemiah is engaged. He's doing his job before the king and he's praying to the Lord. And now the moment has arrived. And he comes before the king. And it's interesting what the text says is uh, immediately it points out his emotions. You know, the Bible is not just a rule book. As some people say the Bible's a rule book. The Bible's a life book. And there's all kinds of crazy stuff in here, including the reality of human heart. And that is emotions. And here in this text, it says that Nehemiah was sad. He was sad. Now, if you are a, uh, secret, a member of the Secret Service, and you're guarding the president, how do you expect this guy to look? Right? You don't expect him to be like, that's not secret service. The guy who stands before the king, the number one, you know, protector, the cupbearer, the guy that gets the poison or the bullet first, if you will, this guy is to be stoic. He is to be stone cold. He's not afraid of anything. He's putting his life on the line every single day. He's a secret service. There he is. He's not really to be noticed. He's not important. He can't talk at the press conferences. Be quiet and do your job. Take the bullet when it's your turn. There you go. So there's Nehemiah, and all of a sudden he comes in with a completely messed up countenance, and the king's like, uh, whoa, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> Who's supposed to protect me today? This blubbering dude over here? That doesn't look good. Not to mention the fact that Near Eastern kings are particularly aware of potential plots. You know, they're suspicious. The reason they say, may the king live forever, is because oftentimes he didn't, right? Sometimes these guys are only on the throne for a few months because everybody and their brother wants to stab them in the back. That's the way we roll. And so, here's the king, and all of a sudden somebody comes into his office, and this guy's looking a little weird. He's like, whoa, hang on. What conversation did you just have outside my door? (laughs) I don't know who you've been talking to or what you've been saying, but you better snap out of it or I'm not sure I want you in here. 
So the king notices him. He's a little suspicious. What's going on with this guy? Now Nehemiah has been called on the floor or on the carpet, so to speak, and there's no way out. The moment has arisen. He has to address this. Or it could be his last day in service of the king. And so the next few words are very important for him. And when you are in that spot, you need to think carefully about what you're about to say. And no doubt Nehemiah does as well. And so here he goes. He's thinking carefully. Okay, what am I going to say? I am afraid. (laughs) I'm scared. Really. And the text even spells it out. It says he was very much afraid. The first thing he does is really neat. You need to understand this in, in, in conversations that can be difficult. Is he affirms his loyalty. Look, I am on your team. I'm with you in this. I support the king. No matter what these potential political advisors who are trying to gain their own power might say about me, I am doing my job. And if you look at my history, in fact, that's what you'll see, king. Look at this long, faithful, clear, consistent history where I've faithfully done my job day after day. What does the record tell you? Long live the king. Long live the king. May the king live forever. That is his statement. So the first thing he does when the king says, hey, what's up? He's like, I'm on your team. I'm loyal. No questions asked. I'm with you. May the king live forever. That's a puzzle piece. So then, here's the next move. He's affirmed his loyalty, but now he needs to explain his countenance he says, why should my face not be sad when Dru- uh, the city of my father's graves lies in ruins? Why would he not say Jerusalem? It's a rebel stronghold. Right? These are the guys that held out against Assyria. This is why all of us nowadays, if you're a part of this ethnic group, call yourself Jews. Because it was the people of Judah who resisted the foreign powers and the invaders. And the exiles who've been scattered abroad when asked, what in the world are you? You're not one of us. They'd say, I'm like one of those guys in Judah. I am a Jew. I'm a Jew. And all of a sudden now we call the Israelites Jews. Because the people of Judah resisted the foreign powers and the occupiers. They held out against Sennacherib of Assyria, they're conquered by Babylon, and now they're exiled in Persia. And all of a sudden, somebody's referencing the rebels' capital. (laughs) You probably don't want to say, I'm allied with the rebels' capital. Instead, what you appeal to is something that everyone experiences, um, and that is the loss of your parents. And you say, hey, this is my parents' graves. It's important to me. It's meaningful. It's a family tradition. I want to go clean it up because right now it's a mess. Would you allow me for the sake of human sympathy to go back to my parents' funerals, to my parents' graves, and clean it up? It's a mess. Oh, king, out of respect for the dead, you even worship some of your ancestors. Come on, give give me a little space here. Will you allow me to do this, king? The gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, I don't say anything to you today in the sermon about the gates, but if you're in a life group, be sure to check out those sub points because there's some really cool stuff in there. This is a biblical theme we see starting with the Garden of Eden. There is a gate to the Garden of Eden. People are thrown out the gate. 
They go, they go and you watch the development of gates to Jerusalem, to the city, to the temple, the tabernacle. All of a sudden, there's some guy in the New Testament calling himself the gate. And then there's this book from this guy who sees crazy visions, and he talks about these big pearly gates. And you go, wow, I think there might be something in that. And if you watch, what you will see, I'm hinting and actually almost giving away the answer, but look up the verses, is that there is a clear thread woven throughout the Bible tied to the word gate. So, the gates. The gates are destroyed, and the king says, well, what is it you want? What is it you are actually requesting, Nehemiah? And this is a really neat statement to me because it's very similar to the book of Esther. See, not too long ago, in fact, it may have been the current king's stepmother, who was in fact Esther, but not too long ago, this Jewish lady by the name of Esther was one of the kings, and consequently, um, what we see is history sort of repeating itself. She was in a spot where God had placed her in an important position. She wasn't the ruler. She didn't get to make the decisions, but she was in the court of the king, very much like Nehemiah. Now, it wasn't her place to speak, but all of a sudden something came up where she couldn't hold back. And she was afraid, and she wasn't really sure if it was her place. It was certainly out of her comfort zone. And yet she was constantly nagged and prompted by the Lord or the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you need to talk here. It's your turn. You've been quiet. You've done your job. You serve faithfully. But who knows? Maybe the Lord has put you here for such a time as this. Nehemiah. Here he is, cupbearer of the king. It's not your choice. It's not your decision. You don't get to make the policies. In fact, it was... Um, Artaxerxes himself who discontinued the building of the temple several years before. So Nehemiah is about to ask the king to reverse his policy and in a land where you think the king is God and makes no mistakes and his decrees are final, that's a little bit weird (laughs) for the king to go back on his decree. And Nehemiah is about to ask him to do so. Say, king, I know you stopped this thing. Do you mind restarting it? It's important to me. So, he kind of sucks it up, so to speak. He's like, okay, here we go. And so I prayed. Verse 4. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. I don't know if you've been in that position before, where you've been stressed and under pressure, And you know the moment has arrived and you know God has called you to do it, but you're still kind of scared. You know, your heart is accelerated. The adrenaline's coming in. The emotions are filling you. You're human. You feel it. And now the time has arrived and you have to put your step, you have to step forward and put your foot forward and you're like, okay, here we go. And that's exactly what it says in the Hebrew. The word here translated prayed is actually whispered. In other words, he whispered a prayer. This is not an out loud, liturgical, audible sort of thing where he says, okay, hold on, king, time out, going to pray. Gets out his prayer book, bends down, and starts going through it. No, (laughs) nothing like that. This is the, uh, oh, God, please help. Here we go. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Time's here. God help. Amen. That's it. Now, I imagine there's a lot of us who have said prayers like that. 
But the difference in this prayer and sometimes those prayers, this prayer is backed up by four months of prayer preceding it. It sits on the foundation of the entire spring from winter to March. He's been praying and now all of a sudden the moment has arrived and he's just going to quick remind God, okay, Lord, come on, here we go. Are you with me? Because if you're with me, I think we're good. And if we're not, I don't want to, I'm not in, you know, I'm done. My head is, if you're not here, Lord, please help. So he prayed, doesn't even tell us what he prayed. And then it says, you know, if it, if King, if I found favor in your sight, let me rebuild. What a beautiful step of courage this is. How in the world did he do that? You know, his life is on the line. You get nervous talking in front of a few people, let alone the king. Here's a guy seated high and mighty on the throne who could, in an instant, lop off this guy's head. The Syrian kings were happy to do that by the hundreds. Persian kings, sorry. So, how does he do it? I see it like this, and I think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing of what, if only I could do all the time, that the Lord would grant me strength. Nehemiah is standing before the king, but he realizes he's not standing before the king. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's standing before a king, but he is not standing before the king. And so, although his request is presented to this small one, it has already been lifted up for a long time to the big one. And so he is not looking at a king, but instead he is looking to the king. Now, as he looks up, he says, oh, Lord God, here we go. I am putting your request before the king, but I know you are a king, but I know you are the king. God, would you grant your request? This is yours, Lord, and I'm looking at you. I am not looking at that king. I'm looking straight at you. He sees beyond the throne to see the throne. He sees beyond a power to see the power. He sees beyond a king to see. To see the king. This is what gives him courage. And this is why there is no crisis of confidence whatsoever. You know, if you're trusting in yourself, of course there's going to be a crisis of confidence. At some point, you will fail. (laughs) Congratulations. Good morning. Everybody wake up. I got news for you. At some point, you're going to fail. And if you're trusting in yourself, the reality is you should have, and rightly so, a crisis of confidence. Because at some point, you will fail. So your fears are real, if you're trusting in yourself. But if you're trusting in God, there is no crisis of confidence, and you see beyond a throne to the throne. And your request is before Him and not man, and you put it on the table, and you know it's going to get done. Because it's not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon Him. So here we go. Here's my request. King, would you hear, would you grant? Oh God, listen. Amen. Hallelujah. Oh, yes. Baby, babies. So, with incredible tact, he moves forward. He reminds the king of his relationship. And he cries out and says, Oh, Lord God, please help. Now, notice how he needs to be careful. This is not pushy. This is not overly assertive. 
This is respectful, but he's also not a whiner. He's not like, if you could, please. <laughs> he's like, no, king, here's what I need. And listen to the request. I mean, it's bold. It is exactly what you've received in your corporate training or coaching or whatever. These are smart goals. They are specific. They are measurable. They are attainable. They are relevant. And they are time sensitive. Every single one of those you see in here. He says, what do you need? He's like, well, I need letters to the governors so that I get passage. He says, okay, what else do you need, Nehemiah? Well, I'm going to need lumber. Okay, well, how long is it going to take you? Well, your majesty, it's going to take me exactly one year, this amount of time. I need lumber. I need letters. I need supplies. And you could throw in some um, protection to boot. The king's like, okay. Here's your project, here's the domain, here's my expectations. You come back to me when it's finished. You got it. Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound. Every single one of those right here in Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah is playing by the rules of the game. In other words, he does, in other words, he does his homework. He does his homework. And look, that's going to come back in the application to you as well. This is, this is not blind faith. Okay, I'm giving it away a little early. But he's not like, uh, King, I don't know. God just told me, so I'm going to do it. No, he does his research. He goes after every bit of information that he thinks he might need. Now, of course, there's unknowns, there's variables, there's whatever. There's limits, of course. But he's going to do his part as much as he can. Well, so too with us, right? Sometimes what we call blind faith is just blindness. And we need to open our eyes and do our research and before we try to move forward. So here is Nehemiah. He's done his research. He's been tactful. He's prayed. And now he's getting closer and closer to moving forward. And it's so cool. And what, what you see next, of course, is that again he exercises great wisdom and discernment. He, he does a little survey trip. You know, he doesn't just take the mission team out on the field without ever having been there before. And then taking a wrong turn and getting lost and being in trouble and having to call for help. Instead, he's gone ahead of them. He does a survey trip. He figures out the lay of the land and he comes back and says, All right, now I, now I have an idea of what's going on. This is how we're going to move forward. And he does so with great discretion. It says in verse 12, he says, I told no one. In verse 16, not even the officials knew where I'd gone or what I was doing. Nobody. I kept it to myself because the time is not right. Look, the wise don't say all they know. And here's a little hint. Don't spill your guts on Facebook. Okay? This is not the place to share your heart. There are more trusted relationships in your life than the broader electronic community. (laughs) Facebook can be fun for certain purposes, but it is not your diary. Okay, look at Nehemiah. He has to figure out who he can trust first, who is a worthy relationship, and then interact with them on that level. First, he gathers his intel, and then he's going to gently expose it to the right leaders at the right time, and then the broader audience. He's intentional about how he moves this thing forward. And by the way, this is what our elders try to do too. 
our elders are really wise guys, and sometimes the criticism that they get before they make a move is, hey, you didn't tell anybody. And believe it or not, they did. They do a lot of surveys and a lot of data, almost <clears throat> ad nauseum. No, I'm just kidding. We're engineers on this committee, right? And so they know how to collect data, and they will, they will do surveys, and they will sample the field, and they will collect information. They're not sitting in isolation, but they're surveying the field. But they don't want to say anything before it's too early because they're not sure of the next step until they've collected, assimilated, processed, and then tested the data. You know this process. You do this in your daily lives. This is what they're doing. And so it takes a little bit of time to move forward with this, and then they will test it on sample groups, right? That's what we did with you know, various things like the budget and the marital policy is they gathered the data, they tested it on sample groups, and they rolled it out to the broader congregation. They're smart. They're doing it the right way. They're not trying to be isolated. They're just being intentional. So too is Nehemiah. He's rolling it out slowly, using discretion, being wise after he's done his homework, saying, this is the way we're going to move forward. Here we go. Now, that's a lot of work. I look at this and I say, man, wow, Nehemiah, months and months of planning and preparation and prayer and data collection and processing and blah, 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 blah. What in the world? And then you risk your life to be able to do it. What in the world motivates you to move forward like that? I mean, why are you going to such lengths? What is your white hot why? Why are you doing this, Nehemiah? What is burning so strongly inside of you that you would go to such great lengths to see this accomplished? Why? Why? Verse 17 is the answer to that. He says, then I said to them, now when he's rolling it out, he's telling the people, why? Why are we doing this, folks? You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That is the white hot why. In other words, what is driving Nehemiah, the burning passion behind everything he's doing in this whole process is the glory of God. This is the city of the great king. This is Jerusalem. This is where Messiah shall reign. This is the Davidic covenant, the promises of the Old Testament, the blessing given to Abraham that's been shared to be shared with the entire world. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. How? When the city on the hill shines forth and everyone everywhere comes to you to worship God. That's the point. He is driven by this grander vision of the glory of God. And he wants all nations everywhere to come together and see this. But what is it now? It's a laughingstock, a mockery, an epithet to the great name of Yahweh. People see that city and they said, it's pathetic. Kamash, Baal, All these Assyrian foreign gods, they trampled over that little Jewish one. They ran him into the ground. He couldn't protect his people. What a joke. Hey, did you hear the one about, you know, three gods walked into a bar. (laughs) One of them walked out. It wasn't Yahweh. Here they go. 
And they're running his name through the dirt and through the muck and through the mire. And Nehemiah is like, enough. This is the city of the great king. Psalm 100 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord in gladness. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. How? How do you enter into his presence if you're an Old Testament Jew? In verse 4, you enter into his gates, which are broken down by fire. And the people are therefore in derision. You cannot enter into his courts if they're destroyed. You can't enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You can only mourn and sing a dirge. Psalm 48 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God. Where? On his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy, not the derision, but the joy of all the earth. Everyone should look to the hills. In Mount Zion, the city of the great king. This is the call of scripture. This is the call of God. This is the purpose of the people of God. And the purpose of the church. And Nehemiah is absolutely passionate about it. Like, Come on. People, do you see this? We're in derision. And that needs to stop. The city is in ruins. We are laughing stock and mockery. Where are you? It's time to act. Then with great wisdom and skill, of course, he reminds them of their covenant. And he can tell the people, hey, rest assured, folks. Rest assured. Psalm 22 says, You who fear the Lord, you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. Remember, Nehemiah said, the great and awesome God. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, And he has not hidden his face from him. may feel like that when we're far away, but he hasn't. He has heard when we cried to him. And the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. And then, what's the point of all this? Well, so that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of nations shall worship before you. For real kingship, the true king, the one who sits on the throne... To him belongs the glory, the honor, and praise from all nations forever and ever. Rest assured, the Lord is true. and He'll be faithful to his word and keep his covenant. Rest assured. This is the way that Nehemiah approaches the people of God. And I don't pretend to be anywhere near the great man that he is, but I hope in some sense I can take the scripture and apply it in the same way to you. And say, look at us, folks, here we are. And you can look around and say, in what ways are we in derision and make that up for yourself? I'm not going to get that specific. But in the end, we know this. Like Nehemiah, we can rest assured because of the apostles and the prophets say to us, hey, if our plans are ours, if this undertaking is of man, then it's going to fail. If it's my idea, it's a bad idea. But if it is of God, there's no way anyone can stop us. If I think I'm running this show, I am the first fool to get ran over by the bus. But if it's the Lord's, there's no going back. If the hand of God is in this, then we can rest assured that everything's okay. 
So then the question naturally becomes, well, that makes it pretty clear, but uh, how do we know if it's God's hand or not? Because, like, I really want God's hand to be in it because we want to do well, right? And so with our church, with my life, with my family, uh, how do I know? How do I know whether or not God's hand is in it? Because, Pastor Jeremy, you just said, first of all, figure out if it's from the Lord. Second of all, move forward if so, and then rest assured, but uh, I'm not sure if it's from God or not. Here's how. Are you ready? Let me give you my top ten in honor of the old Dave Letterman style. Top ten ways to figure out if something is of God or not. You're welcome to write these down and uh, come back to them during the week. Use them to your own situation, however they might apply. The first way or first question is this. Number one, is it of God? How do I know? Well, first of all, is it consistent with Scripture? Is it consistent with Scripture? And you're like, wait a minute, that's kind of vague. Well, look, there's a lot of different stuff in Scripture. There is that which is antithetical or opposite, that which Scripture says don't do. So here's a clue, don't cheat on your wife. You know, there's a good one. People still do it, right? But that's pretty easy to define. Is it consistent with Scripture? Is Scripture ambivalent towards it? Like, eh, either way, you can do it, yes or no. Does Scripture encourage it? You know, this is something you ought to do. Or does Scripture command it? No, you really ought to do this. Figure out where it is on that spectrum, and then it begins to become a little bit more clear. Look, in Nehemiah, he looks at, uh, Old Testament scripture and he hears all these things in the Psalms about the city of God and the you know Mount Zion and all the nations shall be blessed for you and enter into your courts through the gates and he realizes that the walls are pretty important he's like you know what I don't think scripture is ambivalent towards this in fact I think it encourages it now one time God commanded the people to, the Solomon in particular to build it I wonder if he's commanded me to do that too And so he walks through this process, and he's like, what is Scripture saying? You can do the same thing. You know, look at your situation and and figure out, where does Scripture line up on this? It should give you an answer pretty quick. But I've still got nine more, so here we go. Number two, glory. Glory. What is your white hot why? Are you doing this for your glory or for God's? What is your purpose? Be honest. You're not having to say this out loud to anyone yet, so you can really ask yourself, hey, why am I really doing this? (laughs) Is this for me or for God? If it's for you, just say, hey, look, I think it's for me. And the Lord will bring that to your attention at the right time, and you can work through it with him then. And he may even say, still, okay. Or maybe not. But that's the question you need to ask. Why? Nehemiah was clearly doing it for God's glory. If he was in it for himself, he probably wanted to just stay in the palace of Susa, where he's nice and comfortable, has all the food he wants, and gets to drink the choice wine every single day. But instead, he's leaving the uh, winter palace to head up to the hills that are going to be full of snow in a city that's broken down, having no idea where he's going to stay, and he has to build his own home. He's going to be camping out in the wastelands. That's not for his glory. That's for somebody else. Nehemiah was in it for God's glory. In the same way, another question you can ask, is it for others or is it for myself? Because uh, in chapter 
2, verse 10, it says that his opposition was upset, and you ask yourself, why were they so mad? Because Nehemiah had come to seek the welfare of the people. You know, even if the people don't realize it, his enemies did, you know. The people may grumble, grumble, whole complain, but uh, the enemies, see, that guy's heart is pretty clear. He's in it for them. It's not for himself. Why are you in it? What are you doing? Number four, prayer. I think I made this pretty clear throughout. Have you prayed about it? Not just once, oh Lord, please help, but over a long period of time. Have you prayed about it? That'll provide some direction. As you do so, what is the Spirit saying to you? Is He continually bringing it up in your heart? Number five, nagging. Is He pricking you over and over again? Saying, hey, look, really, I, I'm not going to let this go till you do it. I'm going to just keep putting it before you, putting it before you, putting it before you, putting it before you. You need to do it. 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 And you just keep hearing it over and over again. Finally, you're like, all right. All right, I'm in. Is he pricking you? Number six, do you see his hand at work? Do you see his hand at work? In other words, do you see God accomplishing things you could never do? Like, for example, I'm not a physicist, but pushing a rope. Can you push a rope? (laughs) Have you ever tried to get a whole bunch of people who are completely disenchanted and all had different ideas about what should be done on the same page and to do the same thing and be excited about it? Nehemiah presents his idea to the people and they're like, Woohoo! I see that as the work of God. When all of a sudden he brought this rebellious, disenchanted, you know, completely astray people group all of a sudden completely together in unanimous agreement. I see that as the work of God. In the king's heart, in the people's heart, with the supplies, with the governors, with the time frame, everything. The work of God. That's the hand of God. Now, you need to be really intentional about your life in this because it's too easy to let this one go. You know, we get, we get some big idea and we pray for a long, long time. We're like, God, come on, God, come on, come on. And then God grants it. We're like, yes. And we're like, okay, now, next. God, come on, God, come on, God, come on. <laughs> we're like, wait, wait, wait. See the hand of God right here. Stop for a minute. He just did something big. And you need to glory in that. And you need to rejoice in that and come back to the spot for a little bit and say, Wow. That would have never happened were it not for you. Lord, thank you for your active work in my life. Never in a million years would I have thought that that would have occurred. But because of you, here we are. Look at that. You are clearly there because I would not be here if you weren't. I can say that. You know, Canada, Michigan, all of a sudden, surprise, woo, here we are. And Lord, we see you working even down to the, like the, the, border security agents, the TSA on our side and um, a different group on their side. I mean, the guy that interviewed me to come back across, he was actually from Midland. (laughs) So I was like, okay, (laughs) here we go. They're not supposed to say anything at all when they're talking to you. You know, they're just like, and if you step out of line, you get to go back to the little white room and then nobody knows what happens after that, right? I saw it happen to the lady in front of me. They were not happy with her. She got <laughs> pulled over. Okay? The guy's like, you know, where are you going? What are you doing? What's your purpose? Blah, 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 blah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Oh, you're going to Midland? Well, yes, I am. <laughs> All of a sudden, the Lord is at work. It's amazing. 
Do you see God's hand? Number seven, do you see any opposition? Here's a hint. If you're doing God's work, there should be opposition. If things are going too smooth for you, guess what? You're headed towards Niagara Falls. It's going great. You're cruising along. (laughs) Everything feels fine. You should feel some wind in your face. There should be a little bit of resistance. Okay? You should feel that. A little bit of opposition. If there's no opposition, you've got to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Number eight, do I have all the information that I need? Again, I say to you, if you move forward in blind faith, there may be a time for that, but you may actually just be blind. You know, if God is calling you to do something, he's going to provide for you the information you need to accomplish that. And if he doesn't, then it causes me to question whether or not he's really calling you to do it or not. Here is this situation. The Lord's asking Nehemiah to do something pretty big, but the Lord's going to fill in the gaps. So Nehemiah goes looking and the Lord provides. So if you're thinking God is calling you to do something, if you think, hey, I'm supposed to be a missionary, you go out and you're raising support, raising support, and nobody's paying for you, you need to start asking some questions like, hmm, is this really what God's calling me to do? And that's a fair question to ask. And if you're sure of it, yeah, then go forward. But if you're not, then maybe here's your sign. Do you have the information you need? Number nine, is it affirmed by the community of faith? This kind of follows up with that previous illustration, support raising. Look, the people in Nehemiah's covenant community are saying, yeah, we agree with your plans. We're on board. Let's move forward with this. But if all you're getting from the covenant community, we're not talking about the people outside, but the people who are solid, mature believers in Jesus Christ, or in this case, worshipers of Yahweh, if they are coming to you and saying, we're on board, That's a good hint. But if they're saying, oh, we have questions, maybe you should slow up, we're not sure about this, okay, you need to slow down and think about it because that's the Spirit of God working in the corporate community. You need to listen. Finally, top ten, number one way to know, uh uh-oh, is it up on, okay, it's not, good. If you should move forward or not, is, is this the month of Nisan? Is it the month of Nisan? If it is, go. If it's not, wait. What do I mean by that? Thanks for laughing, Paul. Somebody got that. Um, Basically, is the timing right? Is the timing right? Because, you know, it may be the right thing. You've gone through all this. Like, woo, Pastor Jeremy, you just worked me over and I passed all, you know, nine, but not number ten. What do I mean? It could be the right thing, but not the right time. Yes, what you want to do is right. No, we're not in a position to do that yet. First of all, we've got to get ourselves into that position. I coach a little kid's soccer team, and, um, you know, one of the big goals in coaching little kid's soccer is to try to get them not to move forward as a herd, but, you know, but instead to move down the field together as a team, well spread, using their space, passing and playing the game, right? Strategic and intentional. So we're working, I know I've got to work this hard from day one. So I'm getting on them, and the first thing I do is I start off with what I call our Thunderbird strategy. 
you know, and the little boys are like, Thunderbirds? I'm like, yeah, Army planes. Are you listening? They're like, yeah, you know. And I show them a little video on my phone, and you know, you watch those Thunderbirds, and they're moving like, I don't know how fast, but within, you know, inches seemingly of each other, and they're just, wham, wham, wham. And I'm like, look at these guys. Do you understand how perfectly they're moving together? This is how I want to see you guys moving together down the field. You get yourself in position, and then you drop the bomb. Bang! And we score. We're, th- we're going to be the Thunderbirds on offense. And so all three of you forwards are moving together at the same time in the same way, and we're bringing it down the line. We're going to cross it when the defense collapses, and bang, we're going to score. Oh, thanks for letting me tell you that. That felt really good. I worked hard on that all season. Here's the point. Here's how it connects to the sermon is basically when you need to do something for God, you need to make sure to get yourself in position in order to move forward. Like the kids who don't understand soccer are all following after the ball. They never score. But the kid who gets it moves off of the ball, moves towards the goal, and is there so that when the ball moves over, all of a sudden, bam, he capitalizes it, and he smashes it, and he scores a goal. That's the kid who has a clue, and that's the one who's understanding what's going on in the game. That's what I'm saying for you. Look, if you want to move forward, all these things figure out. You've got to get yourself in position to score. And so, in other words, this is how I'd apply this whole text. I'm almost done. I know we're running out of time. Here it is. is how to move forward. Pray, obey, seize the day. Pray, obey, seize the day. Nehemiah prays. He obeys. He's a faithful and consistent steward. And then he gets himself in position. And when that opportunity comes up and the king's like, what's up? Boom. He nails it. He hits it. Because that's his time to attack. Time is right, it's the Lord's will, he's in position, and bam, goal. And that looked good. And the coach is on the sideline going, wow, yes, we've been working on that for so long, good job, knee high, way to go. You know, figure it out. Is it from God? Then you can move forward in faith and rest assured that it'll get done. This is the great promise we have. Doesn't mean we stop working, doesn't mean we stop praying, doesn't mean we all of a sudden, you know, everything's easy, we experience opposition, but we move forward in faith, remembering the covenant of God and trusting that if his hand is upon us, then he will accomplish his will. And in this, we can rest assured and be secured. When we look to the great king and we see not a king, but the king, and we put our request in front of him and ask, Lord, will you go with us? Because if you do, and your hand is upon us, then if that is the case, if this plan is from you, then nothing will be able to throw it over. Father, you're so good, and we thank you for your hand.